Pastor and author Jack Hiles once said, I'd rather die in the will of God than to live outside of it. When we think about and talk about God and everything that he's capable of, I think most Christians believe, or uh, at least we say we believe, that God is omnipotent, right? All-powerful, that he's limitless in his ability, endless in his creativity, that he can do anything he wants to do, right? And yet the moment... Uh, the subject turns to what God wants to do through us. It's almost as if we start talking about a different God. Right? I think most of us would agree that, that nothing is impossible for God until we start talking about ourselves and what He does through us. All of a sudden, it's as if He's limited. Limited in His power. Limited in His ability. Limited somehow in His creativity. A God who's not always able to do the impossible. Of course, we don't say it that way. But if you listen to how Christians talk when we talk about what we believe God can do in this world compared to what we believe God can do in our own lives, I think sometimes it's as if we're talking about two different gods. Right? If you find it easier to believe for God to do something powerful, something miraculous, something even supernatural in someone else's life, more than you believe that for yourself, then what you're saying is God can absolutely do the impossible. He can do whatever He wants to do until it comes to me. Then all of a sudden, somehow He's limited in what He can do. When it comes to me, God can only do what I am capable of. I think that's how many of us think because we project our own human limitations onto an uncreated, all-powerful, all-knowing, all-present, unlimited God as if He cannot be fully Himself when He's working through us, which ultimately leads you to a faith in a God who is big in this world and little in you. And that kind of faith is limiting. It limits what you can accomplish in this life, not because God is limited in what He can do, but because He's limited in what you will allow Him to do in you and through you. We just saw it last week, as Samuel says to Saul, the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. That's what He would have done. But now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart, and the Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people, because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. 1 Samuel 13, 13 and 14. This is a classic example of what could have been, what God wanted to do in Saul's life. But because Saul was faced with impossible odds, as the massive Philistine army closed in around him and his measly 600 men, he didn't believe God could do the impossible through him. So he chose instead to do what he was able to do on his own. He took matters into his own hands, and as a result, Saul missed out on what God would have done through him had he simply believed what God was able to do through him. And I'm convinced we behave the same way today. We temper our expectations of what God will do through us to something manageable, something we can handle ourselves just in case God doesn't show up like we want him to. Right? That way we're not disappointed if he doesn't do something powerful, something miraculous, something supernatural. And then we wonder why we don't see the kinds of miracles today that they did in the Bible. Well, listen, if we never attempt the impossible, there's no need for God to do the impossible. Okay, If, if you want to see God perform miracles in your life, 
then allow him to lead you into situations that actually require a miracle. Stop playing it safe. Stop dreaming dreams that you can always accomplish on your own. This is our predicament today. We've had it so good for so long, we're no longer desperate for God to intervene in our lives. Don't misunderstand me. It's good to be grateful for everything He's blessed us with. Absolutely, as long as we also understand that those blessings aren't meant to simply make our lives more comfortable and therefore diminish our need of Him and His supernatural intervention in our lives. No, those blessings are meant to give us a taste of what He's capable of, to inspire us with confidence to risk even more, to dream bigger dreams, to live on the edge of impossible. The fact is, God's plans for your life are bigger than anything you can come up with on your own, which means it's time for His people to start dreaming bigger dreams. It's time to start believing for things only He can accomplish in your life. I think it's time to step out of the ordinary and start believing for the extraordinary part of God's plan for this world that you were meant to fulfill. It's time to dream bigger dreams. And look, not just for you to have a great life on this earth, but for you to have a great impact on this earth. That's what we see all throughout Scripture, God leading men and women who weren't afraid to dream big dreams. And so He would lead them into impossible situations where their only hope was for God to do something powerful, something miraculous, something supernatural. And every single time, it not only changed the course of their lives, but it profoundly impacted the lives of those around them as well, which is just what we're going to see in our story today as we continue our way through 1 Samuel, where we have Saul still trying to figure out what he can do on his own, what he can accomplish on his own in regard to the Israelites' impending battle with the overwhelmingly larger and far better equipped Philistine army. While Saul's son, Jonathan, without any army backing him, without any of the, the recognition or resources or track record of his father up to this point, he's staring down absolutely impossible odds. Yet Jonathan decides to dream a bigger dream than his father Saul concerning these Philistines who are intent on wiping out the Israelites because Jonathan dared to believe that the power of God in him was greater than all the power of the Philistines put together, no matter how impossible the situation may have been. And because of it, Jonathan goes on to accomplish the extraordinary, the impossible, because he dared to dream a bigger dream, a dream that would require nothing less than the supernatural intervention of an all-powerful God through him if there was to be any hope of success whatsoever. And I'm telling you, if you will allow it to, this story will challenge your entire paradigm, your whole perspective of what following Christ is actually supposed to look like in your own life today. So let's pick the story up where we left off last time and see what life looks like when you allow yourself to dream bigger. First Samuel chapter 14, we'll begin by reading the first five verses. One day Jonathan, the son of Saul, said to the young man who carried his armor, Come, let us go over to the Philistine garrison on the other side. But he did not tell his father. Saul was staying in the outskirts of Gibeah in the pomegranate cave at Migron. 
The people who were with him were about 600 men, including Ahijah, the son of Ahidab, Ichabod's brother, son of Phinehas, son of Eli, the priest of the Lord in Shiloh, wearing an ephod. And the people did not know that Jonathan had gone. Within the passes by which Jonathan sought to go over to the Philistine garrison, there was a rocky crag on one side and a rocky crag on the other side. The name of the one was Bozes and the name of the other Sina. The one crag rose on the north in front of Michmash and the other on the south in front of Geba. So uh, the Philistines have amassed their army. They've been sending out raiding parties as we saw back in chapter 13. Most of Saul's army has abandoned him, and what's left, 600 men are hiding out with Saul in the pomegranate cave at Migron. It's a large cave that was used as a, a sort of a military safe house at the time. If you were here, in fact, when we, when we went back through Judges, the book of Judges, you might remember that at one point in their history, the tribe of Benjamin was at war with the rest of Israel. And as Israel pursued the Benjaminites in one particular battle, wiping out 25,000 of them, the 600 Benjaminites who remained hid out in a place called the Rock of Rimmon, not far from Gibeah, which is described in Judges 20, uh, 45 through 47, which is uh, probably where Saul and his men are hiding out in this story today. Because the word used for pomegranate in verse 2 that describes the cave Saul is in is the Hebrew word rimen, right? As Saul, being a Benjaminite, of course, would have known the story of the Benjaminites who had used this cave as a safe house in the past to hide the exact number of fighting men, by the way, that happen to be with him now. So here they are, hunkered down in their safe place as Saul tries to formulate a manageable plan for dealing with the Philistines. And since Samuel, the great prophet who anointed Saul as king and who accompanied him into battle on the Lord's behalf, has also now abandoned Saul for making unlawful sacrifices back in chapter 13, Saul enlists the help of the previously deposed priestly family of Eli. You may remember all the way back in chapter 2 where Eli the high priest and his entire family line was rejected by God for their sin as God raises up Samuel in service to the temple and to the people of God. But again, uh, Samuel isn't here. He left after Saul unlawfully sacrificed to God in the last chapter, which led God to then reject Saul as king. So now, hiding out in a cave, you have Saul, the rejected king, consulting the great-grandson of Eli, the rejected priest, about how to manage this impossible confrontation with their 600 soldiers, who, by the way, have only two swords among them against the Philistines, who have 30,000 chariots, 6,000 horsemen, foot soldiers like the sand on the seashore, and all of the finest and most advanced weapons available at the time, as we saw in the last chapter. And just for the icing on the cake, these Philistines have the high ground. They're on top of some cliffs that were prominent enough to be given names, right? You know when a, when, a, when a mountain or a cliff or a waterfall or any other natural feature is given a name, it is generally something of significance. The one cliff named Bozes, which means shining because it was in the full sun all day, and the other Sina, uh, which means thorny. In other words, uh, the terrain between the Israelites and the Philistines was about as inhospitable as it could be. And so while Saul and Ahijah hide out in their cave, trying to figure out what they're able to do against these impossible odds and profoundly difficult circumstances, Jonathan says to his armor bearer, Hey, pal, I've got an idea. I think you're going to like it. What do you say you and I go over there where those Philistines are? Kill them boys. 
You want to talk about a pipe dream. This was about as ridiculous a suggestion as anyone could ever make, given the circumstances they were facing. But it was no pipe dream to Jonathan. Because he not only grew up hearing the promises of the Lord like the rest of the Israelites, he actually believed them. Promises like Leviticus 26, 7 and 8. You shall chase your enemies and they shall fall before you by the sword. Five of you shall chase a hundred and a hundred of you shall chase ten thousand and your enemies shall fall before you by the sword. Listen, I think one of the most fascinating, noteworthy and actually common aspects of the promises of God is something we find in this Leviticus promise. Notice he doesn't say, if you decide to chase your enemies... They will fall before you. If five decide it makes sense to chase a hundred, and if a hundred decide it's safe to chase 10,000, then they will fall before you. No, he says, you shall. You shall chase your enemies, and they shall fall before you by the sword. Five of you shall chase a hundred. A hundred of you shall chase 10,000, and your enemies shall fall before you by the sword. You know what that means? It means when God created his plan for your life, he didn't include the possibility of you having to face impossible situations. No, he guaranteed it. You understand God's plan for your life is always more than you can handle. It's supposed to be by design. You know why? To put you in situations and circumstances where the only possible resolution is his miraculous, supernatural power working through you for your good and his glory. We'll talk more about that in a few moments. But look, if what you're pursuing in this life is well within your own abilities, then it is not God's plan you're accomplishing. There was no way that Jonathan could take on the entire Philistine army and win. Absolutely, 100% impossible. And yet there he is on his way over to the Philistines' camp to pick a fight, to willingly take on something that is far beyond anything he could ever handle on his own. And yet, as we'll see, that is not only exactly what he does, but it is exactly what God wants him to do. You see, even as Christians... We can choose a life that is a very different design than what God intended for us, which is what many of us do, I believe. Rather than follow God's plan for our lives, instead we choose a life that we think we can control, one we think we can predict, one that we think is best for us. And I've said this before. If you ask anyone who's 70 if their life turned out like they thought it would when they were 20, Across the board, you will learn that, that most of what we experience in this life is actually outside of our control. Fact is, it is impossible to predict the direction your life will ultimately take. And so with that in mind, between you and the God who created you, you're probably not the one most qualified to determine what is actually best for your life, right? So why do we choose to play it safe? Why do we avoid risk? Why do we only take on what we think we can handle on our own? It's because we're afraid God won't show up when we're facing the impossible. So we never allow ourselves to be in a situation where he has to. Right? And the problem with that is, that is not his plan for your life. So look. If you don't believe you have what it takes on your own to live the life that you know God created you to live, 
Well, then you're correct because you don't. Because the life he created you to live is absolutely 100% not possible on your own. It's not supposed to be, which means you have to choose. You can be like Saul and hide out away from your God-given destiny in a safe place. Or you can be like Jonathan and dream bigger, allowing God to lead you into impossible situations that you could never handle on your own, trusting that he will provide exactly what you need, exactly when you need it. 20th century Scottish theologian William Barclay once said, the tragedy of life and of the world is not that men do not know God. The tragedy is that knowing him, they still insist on going their own way. Let's keep reading, verses 6 through 15. Jonathan said to the young man who carried his armor, Come, let us go over to the garrison of these uncircumcised. It may be that the Lord will work for us, for nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or by few. And his armor bearer said to him, Do all that is in your heart. Do as you wish. Behold, I'm with you, heart and soul. And then Jonathan said, Behold, we will cross over to the men, and we will show ourselves to them. If they say to us, Wait until we come to you, then we will stand still in our place, and we will not go up to them. But if they say, come up to us, then we will go up, for the Lord has given them into our hand, and this shall be the sign to us. So both of them showed themselves to the garrison of the Philistines, and the Philistines said, look, Hebrews are coming out of the holes where they've hidden themselves. And the men of the garrison hailed Jonathan and his armor bearer and said, come up to us, and we will show you a thing. And Jonathan said to his armor bearer, come up after me, for the Lord has given them into the hand of Israel. Then Jonathan climbed up on his hands and feet and his armor bearer after him. And they fell before Jonathan and his armor bearer killed them after him. And that first strike, which Jonathan and his armor bearer made, killed about 20 men within, as it were, half a furrow's length and an acre of land. And there was panic in the camp, in the field, and among all the people, the garrison, and even the raiders trembled. The earth quaked, and it became a very great panic. So Jonathan says to his armor bearer, come, let us go over to the garrison of these uncircumcised. That was a, a derogatory term. He had zero respect for the enemy and feared them not whatsoever, and yet all the respect in the world and fear for the Lord. He said, it may be that the Lord will work for us, for nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or by few. Yet notice at this point, Jonathan still doesn't know for certain if attacking the Philistines is even God's plan. He says it may be that the Lord will work for us. In other words, this could work or we could die. Jonathan doesn't know for certain yet if this is even what God wants, but he's also not going to hide out in a cave doing nothing, playing it safe, wondering if God wants to use him to do something extraordinary because he knows enough about the heart of God to know that the answer to that question is always yes. God always wants to work extraordinarily through his people. That much Jonathan was sure of. At this point, it was just a matter of figuring out specifically how God was going to make that happen. So Jonathan Jonathan says, Behold, we will cross over to the men and show ourselves to them. If they say to us, Wait until we come to you, we'll just stay here in our place. We won't go up. But if they say, Come up to us, then we will go up, for the Lord has given them into our hand, and this shall be 
the sign to us. So Jonathan is committed to hearing from the Lord before he attacks, and yet once he gets his answer, it doesn't matter how many Philistines are on the top of that cliff, how many chariots or horses or swords they have, it doesn't matter how difficult the climb or how impossible the odds. Jonathan is all in. You know why? Because he knows he's not alone. That much is obvious when after scaling a cliff with their one sword and whatever farm implements they may have had with them as weapons, straight away they kill 20 men within, as it were, half a furrow's length in an acre of land, which is to say a half an acre. It was the area plowed by a yoke of oxen in a day. 20 men in a half an acre. And then the earth quaked and it became a very great panic. And when you read that phrase, a very great panic in the Hebrew, it's translated literally as a trembling of God. So we know that God was with Jonathan, and we're going to come back to that in the last part of the story today. Because even before that, right, even before Jonathan gets his confirmation and intervention from God, he gets a commitment from his armor bearer and friend. It's something that I think every single one of us needs to hear when we're about to attempt the impossible. And I just absolutely love this. The armor bearer's response to this utterly impossible, ridiculous plan of Jonathan's, even before they hear from God, the armor bearer says to Jonathan, do all that is in your heart. Do as you wish. Behold, I'm with you, Jonathan, heart and soul. Jonathan was not alone. And not only was the armor bearer willing to share the risk, listen, he was willing to share the dream. And I'm telling you, when God gives you an impossible dream, one of the ways you'll know it's God is because there will be others who are willing to dream that dream with you. No matter how crazy it sounds, no matter how risky it is, no matter what it costs, if it is truly God who gives you the dream, there will always be someone else willing to dream with you because God's plan for your life always includes other people. God will never, ever, ever call you to accomplish something extraordinary alone. Never. In fact, if you can do it all by yourself then it's not God's plan you're accomplishing. So look, I'm just being honest with you. If you, think, uh, if you think just you and Jesus is enough to fulfill your purpose in this life, well, actually, you're mistaken because he never calls us to do the impossible alone. When he sent out the disciples to cast out demons and to heal the sick and to spread the gospel in a hostile environment, he sent them out two by two together. When he called them to wait for the baptism of the Spirit of God, something that must have sounded completely insane at the time, they did it together. Later, when they went out and planted churches in the midst of horrendous persecution, they did it in teams together. And even when Paul was imprisoned in Rome, which was very much a part of God's plan for his life, there were others who came and stayed with him and supported him and ministered to him because God had called them alongside Paul to dream an impossible dream with him, even when that meant persecution and prison. You see, no matter how crazy it sounds, no matter the risk and no matter the cost, if God gives you a dream, there will always be others who will share that dream with you because God knows you're going to need them. Jonathan, he wouldn't have had the same confidence to take on the Philistines alone. 
He probably wouldn't have been able to scale that cliff with whatever weapons they were carrying alone. He wouldn't have been able to defeat the Philistines once he reached the top alone. And God knew it. So he sent Jonathan another man, one who was not only willing to fight with him, but one who was willing to dream an impossible dream with him, to scale a rock wall with one sword, two men, and an army of Philistines waiting at the top to kill them. And yet together they dreamed of victory. And together that is exactly what they got. Which is exactly what every single one of us needs. It doesn't have to be a crowd of people. No, sometimes, uh, sometimes you just need that one person who's willing to go with you heart and soul. That one person who will fight alongside you to make it happen. That one person who's willing to risk everything to dream an impossible dream with you until that dream becomes a reality. That's how you know you can begin to move forward when God calls you to do the impossible. Listen, even, uh, even if you don't know how everything's going to turn out, it's when others begin to dream that same dream with you because God will never lead you into extraordinary things alone. Charles Spurgeon once said, some Christians try to go to heaven alone in solitude, but believers are not compared to bears or lions or other animals that wander alone, but those who belong to Christ are sheep in this respect, that they love to get together. Sheep go in flocks, and so do God's people. Let's finish the story for today, verses 16 through 23. And the watchmen of Saul and Gibeah of Benjamin looked, and behold, the multitude was dispersing here and there. Then Saul said to the people who were with him, Count and see who has gone from us. When they had counted, behold, Jonathan and his armor bearer were not there. So Saul said to Ahijah, Bring the ark of God here, for the ark of God went at that time with the people of Israel. Now while Saul was talking to the priests, the tumult in the camp of the Philistines increased more and more. So Saul said to the priests, Withdraw your hand. Then Saul and all the people who were with him rallied and went into the battle. And behold, every Philistine's sword was against his fellow, and there was a very great confusion. Now the Hebrews who had been with the Philistines before that time and who had gone up with them into the camp, even they also turned to be with the Israelites who were with Saul and Jonathan. Likewise, when all the men of Israel who had hidden themselves in the hill country of Ephraim heard that the Philistines were fleeing, they too followed hard after them in battle. So the Lord saved Israel that day, and the battle passed beyond Beth-Avon. So while Jonathan and his armor bearer are fighting with the Philistines, God sends an earthquake to panic and confuse the enemy. And it creates such a tremendous stir that Saul's watchmen run back to the cave where Saul and his army are hiding and report that the enemy is being scattered, which prompts Saul to take roll call, where he discovers that his own son Jonathan and the armor bearer are stirring things up as they fight for their lives against overwhelming odds. So Saul immediately jumps up, rallies his troops, and charges into battle to save his own son and push back the Philistines. Actually, no. No, that's not what Saul does. Incredulously, after hearing that his own son, along with another man, are locked in the fight of their lives, Saul calls for the priest to help him decide what he should do. 
He says to the priest, bring the ark of God here. And interestingly, the, the Septuagint, the ancient Greek translation of the Old Testament, which, by the way, is about 1,200 years older than the Masoretic text, which is what most of our modern translations of the Bible come from. The, the Septuagint has the word ephod in place of ark in verse 18, which a lot of scholars believe is the correct reading of that verse because it makes more sense that Saul would call for the priest to bring the ephod, which we know from verse 3 the priest had with him because the ephod contained the Urim and Thummim, which were used throughout uh, Israel's history to determine the will of God. There were these stones or tokens kept in the ephod that the high priests of Israel would cast like dice to help them determine the best course of action when big decisions had to be made. And so while Jonathan is fighting for his life in the future of Israel, his father, the king of Israel, is calling for the priest to cast the Urim and Thummim to determine whether or not he should join in the fight. It's the very picture of a man who's lost his way. Paralyzed by fear and indecision with only two swords between them and 600 men with nothing more than farm implements to fight with, Saul can only see what he is capable of against the Philistines, which in this case is not much. And yet as Saul and the priest are consulting the Urim and Thummim, the quaking of the earth increases and the commotion of the Philistines in utter panic becomes absolutely unavoidable to the point that Saul finally realizes God is up to something. So he tells the priest, withdraw your hand. In other words, forget it, we're going in. Then Saul and all the people who were with him rallied and went into the battle and behold, every Philistine's sword was against his fellow and there was very great confusion. So they rout the Philistines in what was what was an impossible victory. The Israelites had no swords. So God did what the Israelites could not do. He used the Philistines' own swords against them to win the battle. It's just how God works in our lives even today. He expects you to do what you can do. And yet at the same time, he knows that what you can do will never be enough on its own to do everything that he's called you to do. And so he does what you cannot Okay, God's plan for your life will always require supernatural intervention. Always. In fact, if you can take all the credit for what you're doing, then it's not God's plan you're accomplishing. The truth is, you cannot live the life that God created you to live by natural means only which is why he puts something inside of you that is not natural. It is supernatural. The very spirit of Christ himself, and only by that spirit will you be able to live the life you were meant to live. And of course, that means, uh, that means learning to wholly rely on something otherworldly, something inside of you and yet bigger than you, something that will lead you into and enable you to accomplish what would otherwise be absolutely impossible. Yet we worry, we worry that somehow our own limitations will limit God. As if our impotence can somehow overcome God's omnipotence. Are you kidding me? Who do, who do we think we are? You understand, when, when we actually start believing that our limitations can somehow nullify the dream that God put inside of us, we're giving ourselves far too much credit. Our inferiority cannot overcome his superiority. 
Our limitations cannot overcome his limitlessness, which means none of your inability can overcome his plan for your life. The dream he's put inside of you is his to accomplish through you as long as you're willing to pursue it knowing that it will always be too big for you. It's always going to be too big for you. Get over it. It will always be too much for you to do alone or without a supernatural intervention in your life. Again, Charles Spurgeon says, you're engaged in a work so spiritual, so far above all human power, that to forget the spirit is to ensure defeat. Right? We say it all the time. Nothing is impossible for God. The question is, do you believe that when it comes to your own life? When he's working through you? Or do you find yourself believing in a God who's big in the world, but little in you? You see, I, I think it's time the people of God start to dream bigger. It's time to start believing for things that only he can accomplish in your life. I think it's time to step out of the ordinary and start believing for the extraordinary part of God's plan for this world that you were meant to fulfill. But you understand that's going to mean stepping out even when you don't have all the answers. Even when you don't know how it's all going to turn out. Even when it's more than you can handle, sometimes you just have to take that first step anyway. Because if we never attempt the impossible, well, then there's no need for God to do the impossible. It's time to start dreaming bigger dreams together, knowing that no matter how impossible it may seem, God is always with us, and He goes before us, accomplishing all the parts of that plan that we cannot. For our good and for His glory, not just to have a great life on this earth, but to have a great impact on this earth. And that is why, that is why we need to dream bigger. Let's pray.